It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. The traditional idea of a career as something with a clear path and a ladder to climb is becoming more and more outdated. In today's world, people are more likely to change jobs frequently or have multiple gigs. And they're not always just looking for a higher salary. But some of our judgments about life choices haven't really caught up with reality yet. We have linear expectations and nonlinear lives. And the tension between our expectations and our lives, what we should do and what we want to do, is responsible, I think, for most of the happiness uh, uh, gap in the world today. We don't always find fulfillment where we think we should. In this new, fast-changing world, where can we look for our role models and wisdom about forging our path in life? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations presented at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Today's discussion brings together three authors who have spent a lot of time researching and thinking about jobs, work, and big life decisions. Writer and speaker Bruce Feiler's latest book is The Search, Finding Meaningful Work in a Post-Career World. He joins Kevin Kelly, the co-founder of Wired Magazine and co-chair of the Long Now Foundation. Kelly recently published a compilation of his life's learnings called Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier. Journalist and author Joanne Lippman moderates the conversation and shares what she learned writing her latest book called Next, The Power of Reinvention in Life and Work. Here's Lippman. One of the things that I found, and I want to, I'm going to address this first question to Bruce, because there was some research that I came across in my own book, Next. So my book is... It's a deeply reported guide to navigating change in how you live, work, lead, and it's backed by hundreds of personal interviews plus the latest scientific breakthroughs that are really changing the way that we think about change, that our, our understanding of how we change. And one of the pieces of evidence that I came across there was so interesting is that each successive generation is spending less time on a job. Millennials, two years and eight months on each job. Gen Zers, just two years and three months. And Bruce, you are deep into this, and I would love to hear from you. How does that impact the way you're looking at job search, and how is that different than what we used to see? Um, first of all, thank you, Joanne, and a pleasure to be with you and my old friend of, of decades. And to Kevin, um, we are new friends, new but friends. we have been um, on similar journeys for many years. And welcome to all of you and how great it is to be in this environment talking meaningfully with new friends and old alike. Um, so let me, uh, because we're going to dig into all these things and, and wherever you lead us, Joanne, we're going to follow. Let me take two minutes and, and do a kind of big, quick big think on the history of work. There have been four major changes in the history of work, right? The first one was 12,000 years ago when we went from um, hunting and gathering and wandering to agriculture and we settled in one place. And that agricultural world dominated uh, for most of the next um, hundred centuries. Then the next big change in work, we went from work 1.0 to 2.0 was the Industrial Revolution, uh, which happened, of course, in the late 19th century when, uh, for the first time, a third of Americans fled into cities, millions more joined them overseas, and we had a big change in how we worked. The third big change occurred 50 years later when we went from the industrial age to the office age, right? From people who uh, shower after work to people who shower before work. Um, and, um, and we are now in the fourth biggest change in the history of work as we go essentially from a knowledge-based economy to a networked-based economy. Now, this story is largely well-known, but what is less well-known is that in each of those changes as how we changed work happened, we changed how we think and we, and we talked and we found work, okay? So that the idea of the career was essentially invented 100 years ago um, at the dawn of the industrial age when suddenly you had all these people in cities, they didn't have work, you had all these new companies, they didn't know how to find workers. So a guy named um, uh, Parsons invented the idea of the career and the idea was you're going to make a decision once 
in your 20s if you were a man and you were going to do this for the next 50 years, okay? So there had never been a word or concept for career. It was invented 100 years ago. That's the historical aberration. Jump forward 50 years later when we went from the industrial age to the office age, what was invented then? Answer, the resume. And what is the resume? It is a linear construct of work, a series of successive jobs. Each one is bigger and higher and, and more prestigious than the last. Today, we are going through one of these changes and we don't have the frame, which is exactly what you talked about. So to get it in a nutshell, we live non-linear work lives. So I have dug into six years, 1,500 hours of interviews, and we go through what I call a work quake, right? Which is a jolt, a disruption, either forced upon us or we choose to rethink or reimagine uh, what we do. And we go through one every, on average every two and a half years. But 2.8 years, in fact, is what it is for the average. But to your point, Joanne, women go through them more than men. Xers go through them more than boomers. Millennials more than Xers. Zers will go through them more than millennials. Diverse workers go through them more than non-diverse workers. And so therefore, that number is only going to grow. So the essence of what we're talking about is when you are in a work quake, what is it that you do? And the problem that we have to frame this conversation from my point of view is that when we were all following the linear track, okay, the, the path, okay, the corporate ladder, the resume, we only <laughs> looked at bigger office, higher salary, better view, but in fact, the people who are happiest, they don't climb, they dig. They do what I call this meaning audit and they go inside themselves and that's the challenge. No one is teaching us to do in effect what Kevin, you've been doing your whole life, which is to think meaningfully about the work. Don't just grab for the next brass ring. And speaking of Kevin, so tell us a little bit, your book has a somewhat unconventional format, so maybe you could just explain a little bit the backstory there, which I think had something to do with your children, I believe. Yeah, yeah, so, so um, very much to this, to this pattern, uh, in the 1970, when I graduated from high school, um, I went to one year of college and then dropped out. And I dropped out because there were no other option other than going to college. There wasn't a gap year. There wasn't internships. There was only grade 13 sitting in classrooms and I just <laughs> couldn't do it. So I, by dropping out, was signing up for this kind of non-career career. I was expecting to um, have a lot of time and not very much money, which is true. Um, but what I found out over time was that that was actually the new wealth, was having control of your time, not money. But I, was, I had a, an experience of trekking in Nepal. I was very young. I had no money. I had a lot of time. I was going through very slow. <coughs> there was a, a kind of a, a paid portage of, of very wealthy older people coming through who had porters carrying their stuff. And I remember a conversation with an elderly gentleman who told me that he envied me because I had so much time to explore this. And it was like a light bulb went off. Like, oh, I'm the wealthy guy here. I have no money, but I have control of my time. And so I think part of what we're seeing in this is a shift to that kind of control of your time and how you give your energy and control of, of, of that. And so I, by inadvertent luck, lucked into that path that is sort of what we're now all aiming for maybe, of um, having more control over my time. And I learned recently, and another epiphany about this, which is that uh, because of my role in Silicon Valley and Wired, I have had some time to hang around with literally billionaires. I mean, people who are multi-billionaires. And what I figured out from that was um, it was uh, the most precious thing in the world we have is the 24 hours that we have because those billionaires can buy anything except more time. It's the only thing that they can't buy. And I figured out that that's the most precious thing. So if I could convince somebody to give some of their precious time to my project, that was like the best bargain in the world. No matter how much I paid them, it was still the best bargain in the world was to get someone else to give you their time. It's like, oh my gosh. So I, I was a kind of a whole earth do-it-yourselfer. I wanted to do everything myself and it took me a long time to realize that the best thing to do was to hire other people to do things <laughs> because I was maximizing the one scarce resource in the universe, which was time. So, so anyway, I... Yeah, keep going. But that's my journey and I 
wanted to put some of that kind of wisdom into a little book of Proverbs. It's, think of it as the Bible without the stories, <laughs> just the Proverbs. And so um, I did that and I started to do it for my kids who are now young adults because I wasn't, we weren't very preachy, but we wanted to model the behavior, which we did. But there were things I thought that they should know, like which I just said about this shift in finding and leveraging other people's time. So I wrote them down to a little book of Proverbs and that's what uh, Excellent Advice is about. Terrific. So actually what I'm hearing from both of you is that we have to break out of our conventional wisdom. We have to rethink mm -hmm. how are we looking at what are our jobs, careers, what is our purpose in life, and let's get out of the conventional wisdom. And um, I actually found the same thing in reporting next, which is fascinating. It fits right in with this because in interviewing these hundreds of people and the experts, um, I, I found that there were similarities in people who had these sort of major transitions, whether it was just you know, to a new career or really like overhauling their entire life or coming back from a failure, people who had huge professional failures or trauma in their lives and how they were able to get through it. And, uh, and I, I talk about this reinvention roadmap of four steps, which is search, struggle, stop solution. We can talk a little bit more about that later, but what we got into, what I understood from all the stories of the people I heard is there were two really big myths that have been holding us back that I want to explode for you right now. And one is what I call the Cinderella myth. When you hear about stories of people with great success or great transformation, it seems to happen overnight, right? It's like Mark Zuckerberg, he goes from college kid to tech billionaire, boom, right? And, and, but it's something that has been brought, we have been inundated with this since birth. When you think about Cinderella and the frog and the prince, and then it's Spider-Man and Superman, and then it's American Idol and who wants to be a millionaire? We have this idea that things should be easy, that you should go from the beginning to the end. And we kind of conveniently leave out that sort of struggle part that I'm talking about in the middle. And yet that struggle part, which is really lonely, it's when you feel like you're standing still. It's when you feel like you're not sure where you're going. You're kind of disconnecting from where you were, but you're not sure you can see the future to where you're going. That part we leave out in our popular imagination and our stories, and yet that is the most important work. And um, even though you feel like you're standing still, that actually is where the most important work is getting done. You are moving forward. Um, so that Cinderella myth, very damaging to us. So we just have to, let's like kill that one. And then the second one I want to reference, which goes right to both of your personal stories really, is this idea that you're supposed to know exactly where you're going. So if you read the traditional business books, they like think and grow rich, right? This is like almost 100 years old and it's still a bestseller, right? And the idea is have a goal and then work backwards and work every step of the way to get to your goal. And what I found is, yes, awesome, that's great advice if you're gonna be a surgeon. And you know you wanna be a surgeon, you damn well better, like take your MCATs and go to med school. But for so many of the people I interviewed, they had these meandering paths and you have to be open. And this is what they all told me. You need to be open to where you're going. I mean, one of my favorite people who I met in, in my book, in my reporting, is a guy who, is, who was for 30 years a Harvard-trained economist at J.P. Morgan and London and Manhattan. And when I met him, what he is now is a cattle farmer in the Hudson Valley in New York. And I said, okay, that's an incredibly extreme like transition. And he said, well, actually it was quite organic. And this was the key, right? He said, I didn't, I never expected to be a cattle farmer. Nobody sets out to be a cattle farmer unless you're born to that. But he said what happened was he, over time, when his family was young, he was looking for the least expensive getaway from the city that he could find, and he found a broken down old farmhouse. And over time, he fixed it up, spent weekends there, learned from the farmers around him, got drawn into the business, and became enamored of the business, spent more time on it, and eventually, after several decades, um, realized that he, you know, he owned cows he had now on his property and he had learned how to castrate cows and all kinds of things. And um, he, um, but he, he realized that he had to, to choose. And that was his stop moment. He had to choose. We were spending so much time at work, so much time on the farm, and he and his wife, you know, the farm won, and ultimately they became a farmer. But his point was, it was an organic transition. It looks crazy and extreme, but to him, it happened over time. And also he said he uses every one of his skills 
in his new role. From being an economist, it's you have to know how to operate a small business, you have to know how to do your balance sheets, you have to know about supply chains. And so it, this was so true for everyone, you know, whether it was him or whether it was the guy who finally uh, you know, got his dream, immigrant child, makes the dream, gets to Yale, gets the managing director position, and then realizes actually he's not happy. Like that, he realizes that's what he thought success was, but he realized, no, that was not what success was. What success was for him was he quit the job, moved his family across the country, became an entrepreneur. He makes less than a tenth of what he used to make. But as he said, he makes enough to live and for his family. He surfs every morning, which is what he loves to do. He's home in time to have breakfast with his kids and take them to school. He said he's worked his life around his priorities instead of having some other person's view of success. And I think that we've seen that um, throughout, and there's many, many more people who are feeling that way. And I know, Bruce, you also talk about in your book the three lies and one truth that I would love for you to share with people. So I, I, I'll echo what both of you have said, and, and, and particularly this passion thing. I think the worst piece of career advice that, 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 that has become gospel right now is follow your passion, because it describes almost nobody who is happy um, and doesn't help you particularly get to a happy and meaningful life. In fact, if you want to crunch the numbers, when I ask people who are self-described happy now, um, only one in 10, in fact, followed their passion, because your passions change and devolve over time. And again, we're putting way too much pressure on, on, on young people in order to pick what they want. So yeah, when you talk about work, yeah, so the, my book is framed and I, and I think that the kind of the way to un think about work today is what I call the three lies um, and one truth about work. So lie number one is you have a career. Um, a, a very small number of people, as, as you've just said, Joanne, um, uh, you know, set a goal and achieve it, but far more of us change our passions, evolve over time um, and respond to events in our lives. I, um, I had a you know, traditional fantasy see career life where I figured out what I wanted to do early. I did it for no money. I had success. And then I, I as some of you may know, and, and, and you and I've talked about Kevin, um, I wrote a series of books and made television shows um, around the idea of walking, walking the Bible, etc. Well, then at 43 years old, as the father of three-year-old identical twins, I was diagnosed with a rare aggressive bone cancer in my left leg. So suddenly I was the walking guy who, who couldn't walk anymore. And I was on crutches for two years and on a cane for a year after that. And I had to reinvent myself. So um, number, line number one, you have um, a career. You don't have a career. You have a series of, of, of ways that you work huh, that suit who you are at the time. Line number two, you have a path. We've discussed that already. In fact, you're going to go multiple times. The, prob the core problem that we have today is people are unhappy with their career but the, and people think there's something wrong with them. In fact, it's the idea of the career that is torturing us. We have linear expectations and nonlinear lives. And the tension between our expectations and our lives, what we should do and what we want to do, is responsible, I think, for most of the happiness uh, uh, gap in the world today. And the third lie is that you have a job. On the surface, this seems the most absurd. Of course I have a job. How else do I pay my bills and get my benefits? But in fact, that's not true. The average person has up to five jobs. Okay, there's a main job. Okay, we think we know what that is, but by almost any metric, only half of us even have a main job anymore. There are uh, two thirds of us have care jobs, like caring for children or aging relatives. Three quarters of us have a side job, which I feel like we talk about a lot in the culture, but there are two more types of jobs which I have named in the search. One is 89% of us have what I call a hope job, which is something that we do that we hope leads to something else, like writing a screenplay or selling pickles at the farmer's market. And for most of these hope jobs, we're actually paying out of pocket for the privilege of doing them. Okay, and, the, and then the last kind of job is that 93% of us have what I call a ghost job which is something that we struggle with that feels so much like work that it feels like a job, like self-doubt or imposter syndrome or sobriety or mental health or bigotry or discrimination or microaggressions. And the way to think about this, from my point of view, is that the one thing that's non-negotiable and I think that goes through all of our lives and that really captures what's going on today is that fewer people are searching for merely for work anymore. Mm -hmm. More people are searching for work with meaning. 
and it's the meaning that's non-negotiable. And so, at mul so maybe we do our main job because we need the salary and benefits, and we do our side job or our hope job because it gives us meaning. And I wanted to pick up on what you said, Kevin, and, and make two more quick thoughts here, and that is, the traditional linear idea of the American dream, which is that each generation wanted to do better than the previous generation. And the way better was, was determined was the exclusive metric of money mm -hmm. and status and the car you drive and the size of your house and how many pickets in your white picket fence. Young people, for a whole bunch of reasons, not least of which the, uh, the escalation of real estate values, it's gonna be very hard for the next generation to do better than the prior generation, if that generation is the boomer and the extra generation. But people still want to do better. So how do they want to do better? They want to live life with more meaning. And that's the change. And anybody here, someone just came up to me at the beginning of this and said, I just bought the search and gave it to my child. The gap that we have between parents and our children is that children are saying, I'm not prepared to sell my soul anymore to a company, to the corporate ladder, to the track because I looked at you, mom and dad, and you were unhappy, and I'm not prepared to do that. And that leads to the one truth. The one truth is that only you can tell the story of your own your work life. Mm -hmm. Stop chasing someone else's dream. Start chasing your own dream. And the problem is, is that that's the toolkit that no one's given us. Right. How do I know what gives me meaning? How do I decide at 20 different times in my life how I'm going to choose my work? And so what I've tried to do is put together, and we, I'm sure we'll get into this, is a toolkit, a series of questions, I call it 21 questions to find work you love. When you are in a work wake, when you know you want meaning and no one's told you how to find it, when you're in the, you don't want to go to the 13th year, right, right, when, right. You do, when you don't want to, you're not going to lead USA Today anymore, how do you dig? That's the, that's the missing skill today. Right. I, I just want to follow up on something because I have this book of advice and one of the pieces of advice is, um, particularly to young people, is um, if at all possible, trying to work somewhere where they don't have a name for what it is that you're doing. Oh, nice. Because, because it, where it might take a half hour to explain to your mother what it is that you do. Because that's a good sign that you are somewhere close to what you are good at. And the second piece of advice is don't try to be the best. Hmm. Try to be the only. The best is kind of occupied. It can only be number one hedge funder. It can only be one person who's the best hedge funder. In the world. It can only be one best golf player in the world. And they can be easily displaced by the number two and so you want to be yeah. on this path. If, you, if, if this is your career, your career is to find what it is that you do better or want or willing to do than most people. And just as everybody here has an individu individual face, we all have an individual makeup of, of abilities, talents, experiences, stories. And this journey yes. is going to take all your life. N nobody has arrived. I haven't arrived at this huh. place of of being the only, you, you haven't, but we're on that path, we're getting close to it. And the problem is, is that it, it's not a destination, it's a direction, okay? And it's gonna take most of your lives. All the people that you've interviewed, they have this meandering, crooked path to try and become the only. That's the only way to get there. There's no straight line to becoming the only. And the only is the sense in which Things that you find hard, other people, f things that you find easy, other people find hard. Things that other people don't appreciate, you do. And that is where you want to end up. And that is sort of yeah. fits into. I, I love this it. And I, and I know you have a question, Joanne, but I just want to say the last story in the search is from somebody who grew up in an underrepresented background in the Bay Area, went to work at a large corporation, left, came back to the corporation, and redefined her role in it. She didn't actually even leave the organization. And right. she said to me, I finally realized that I'm um, a one and only. Right. And, you, and what I have found in my thinking about this, and it echoes your writing too, Johan, yeah is that we're all one and only's exactly. anymore. We, and we they're, they're, but we need a, a definition of success that doesn't limit it and say, go stand right, like right. Johnny Carson used to do on the star at the, at the, at the base right, of, right. of the Tonight Show floor right. and stand on the star. But we need to give people permission. A lot of it is permission sure. giving right. and, to and, take the right. risk to make the one common thing in all the stories I heard is that everybody makes a decision at one point that is the unright choice. 
Somebody thinks it's the wrong choice, but for you, it's the unright choice, the untaken turn, the unaccepted compromise. We are in the process of turning the abnorm into the norm, and that's the, the beauty of it. Because we used to say there's only one way, and now there's, right. there's many ways. Right, and, and the thing about being the best is that you see how it is. You know what the path is to be the surgeon. You know what the path is to be a professional basketball player. What we don't, you can't see, there's no role model for the path to be you. And so that's a hard thing to see. And we don't have a lot of role models of people saying, you can be you, you can be the best you, you can be the authentic you. How do you do that? And so we need a toolkit for helping us on this path where we don't have someone else's ruler to measure our lives with. So we're going to get to some strategies, which I think are very important. And, and as well, in Next, I also put together a dozen strategies, a toolkit, if you will, of strategies to um, get you from here to there. But before we dive into specific strategies, first, just a comment on the two uh, quotes that you pulled yeah, out of right, your right, own right. book. I also pulled out. Oh, I underlined nice. them. Look at that. Along with another one of my favorites, which was ignore what others may be thinking of you because they're not thinking of <laughs> yeah, you. <exactly. laughs> And one other of my personal favorites was never ask a woman if she's pregnant. Right. That was <laughs> <laughs> um, but before we dive into the specific strategies, we've touched on a little bit this idea that the advice can be different for different groups. And, and next, one of the areas I dug into, so my previous book, that's what she said, was all about closing the gender gap at work. I actually wrote it for men because there's a lot of good men out there who actually want to be part of this conversation and a lot of women talk to each other about these issues. We don't talk to men. And so what I wanted to do was also look at these underrepresented groups and what does that mean in terms of change. And what I found is I have a chapter in Next actually on the underrepresented groups because we do have a different career path. Women do have a slightly different career path than men do. The LGBT community, people of color, we all face different challenges. And and particularly, for for example, in in the case for women, there's actually a researcher um, at Bowling Green State University who has studied just career paths and has found that virtually all women will need to reinvent their careers at some point. And it's for a variety of reasons, right? It could be that they're, you know, there could be lifestyle, the, the workplace is too rigid, it could just be, um, you know, women in their 30s stop getting opportunities, whether they have children or not, um, they get fewer opportunities, so, or they could, you know, they reach the glass ceiling, they get the top job and get marched off what's called the glass cliff. In other words, they get the top job only because the company's in trouble. And then they fail because the company's in trouble, and then they get the blame. Um, All of these things happen, and as a result, women tend to reinvent. But the other fascinating thing about women and other uh, other groups, uh, by the way, black men, there's been a lot of research also have the glass clip. There's been um, research on college coaches. Black coaches are put into those positions when their teams have losing records and when it's difficult to turn them around and they are given less time than white men to turn their teams around. So for all of those reasons, this, it's a slightly different table stakes, right? For women, for people of color. And, um, but it also tends to make those groups more entrepreneurial. And what this research has shown us, in, and what I see in real life, is that these groups tend to reinvent themselves, become more entrepreneurial, and the research has shown that women, when in their later careers, when they reinvent themselves, are very much mission-driven, purpose-driven. They tend to go into those careers, and I've, it, once you understand that, you kind of see it everywhere. Um, Sally Krachek, who, who spoke here a couple days ago, who, she was the uh, CEO of two different investment banks and lost her job very publicly on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, fired from her investment banking job. And she um, went on to um, reinvent herself. But what she did is, even though her whole career was in banking, had nothing to do with gender, but she realized that women were this really underrepresented group in terms of finance. So she's created a company called Ella Elevate and Elevest, um, which is solely helping women to become financially literate, and then Elevate, which is a nonprofit to help women in finance. But there are so many women like her at every single level um, that we see. And so I, I do find that the advice and the, and the pathway for all of us 
it is quite different and more challenging. And the one other thing I would say, though, about、uh, just in terms of women, is that when we do lose a job or change a job, we, there, one of the huge issues that comes up in all of the conversations I've had with the, with the people I interviewed is this idea of self-identity. Right? The idea we are so tied to our job titles. And one of the big things holding us back is you're afraid to, to leave that title because that is who you are. And we all have it. Men have it far more than women.、Mm-hmm. So we find that when women lose a job or leave a job, they immediately tap into alternate identities. You know, I'm a mom, I'm a sister, I'm a, I'm a weekend athlete. Um, a mom,、um, but men have a much, much more difficult time in, in disconnecting, and it makes it that much harder to sort of take that leap and, and be bold and go into that, to that next thing.、Um, I'm wondering, before we go into any strategies, if, if you see different,、uh, you know, different pathways for different types of groups or different advice. I, I think. Advice, is, is the, the, the problem with advice is that it's very general. And、um, I find if you're giving advice to specific people, that it has to be general because the circumstances are so particular and specific. And so, actually,、uh, my response to having that def- difficulty is to be as general as possible <laughs> and to, to let you interpret it. So,、um, I, I think、um, the thing about advice is that it's,、um, it's hopeful, it's optimistic. It's,、uh, the, the question is, like, why have advice at all? Is, is, is this advice useful to anybody? Should we be, should we be listening to advice? <laughs> does, it, it, does, it, does it actually work? And I think,、um, I, I think it does. I think it does. It's, it's really closer to a reminder than anything. It's. We've kind of heard these things. We're kind of、um, discovering these things on our own. And mostly, what advice is, is a way for us to be reminded of them. And I think the kinds of work that you, both of you are doing, where you're doing academic studies, is in some ways codifying things that people can kind of feel and intuitively guess at because of the way the world is working.、Um, and so, Being able to reduce it to a zip file, a little proverb, is, is just really a way for us to, to talk about it and to be reminded. But I actually think that for the most part,、um, it's closer to just something that we're recalling rather than that we're learning. First of all, advice from you. I'll take any time.、Um, <laughs> so, the advice giver.、Um, just three quick points to tie a few of these th- threads together.、Uh, on the advice front,、um, when I was working on, on, on Life is in the Transitions, I did find that one of the ways that we get through a life transition is to share your story with other people. But the people like different kinds of feedback. Some people are, are what I call uh, uh, comforters. You know, I love you, Julie. You're going to get through it. I believe in you. But some people like what I call nudgers. Like, I love you, Julie, but I think you should try this. <laughs> And some people like what I call slappers, right? I love you, Julie, <laughs> but get over yourself. You've been telling this story for a long time. It's time to go join this group or get off or make that phone call or whatever it is. So if you are the person giving advice to someone, Ask what kind of advice they want from you、uh, before you give it, because your phenotype of advice might be different than the person、um, who's receiving your advice. On this new book, on when I was working on the search, I actually asked people in your work transition, what's the best advice? Did you get advice? Who was it from? And what, and what was most helpful? And the headline was glaring. Well, two headlines. Number one,、um, the best advice did not come from family, it actually came from co-、uh, colleagues.、Mm-hmm. Which we might be reluctant to talk to because we might think, and, and followed by professionals, families, family were, were dead last. But the best piece of advice, three quarters of people said that the best advice they got was the someone telling them,、um, trust yourself.、Mm. You already know the answer. Right. Keep walking in the direction that you're walking in. People right, right. don't want to kick in the butt, they want a pat on the back.、Right. Um, and that leads, I want to just pick up on what you said, because I thought it was beautiful, Joanne, about the fear element. Because somebody in this room or watching us um, um, on, a, on,、uh, on video either is or knows someone who's struggling with this question do I stay or do I go? The simplest answer to that question is. When the pain of leaving is smaller than,、uh, than the pain of staying.、Right. 
another way of saying this, when the pain of staying is so, gr- so great that you are prepared to go into the unknown, that is a great test. And if you are thinking about leaving, but you think you're not ready, create what I've called a buffer zone. People do six months, 12 months. I'm going to start a hope job. I'm going to start a side job. I'm going to begin to experiment. I'm going to work on that novel. I'm going to start making that jewelry to sell on Etsy or whatever it might be is that you create, it's not a black or white thing, but when the pain of staying is greater than the pain of leaving, people will leave. So I have two things, two little bits of advice in my book. There we go. And one of them is um, when someone tells you something is wrong and say your life or something you've created, they're usually right. <laughs> when they tell you what the solution is, they're usually wrong. Nice. Yeah. Okay. That is so good. I underline that one too. That is right, right. so <laughs> that's good, right? So, because it's much easier to see how things don't work. By the way, I have a writing rule about it. Two people exactly. don't like a paragraph. They don't know why it's bad, but it's bad. Exactly. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so the the other one was um, the, the second point you were making about, um, which I just lost my train of thought on. What, what, uh, staying or going. Staying or going. Best yeah. advice is whether one advice you already have. Uh, <laughs> yourself. I don't know. Uh, I forget what it was. So. Um, Okay. Go ahead. Well, why don't we talk, because I want to leave some time for questions. So I, let, let's do sort of a quick round of, of specific strategies that we want to leave people with. Um, and why don't we do Kevin, Bruce, and then I'll go. Specific strategies for, in terms of a career? Just, yeah, in terms of people who are looking for that path, looking to make that change. Right. So actually, this was something to follow off what Bruce said. I think one of my bits of advice is rather than grand plans, prototype your life. Prototype things. That turned out to be something I really, really wished I knew when I was younger. And that's true of projects that you're working on as well as your life. Rather than sort of, you're going to quit your career, you're going to take out a loan, you're going to make a business plan for five years. Rather than that, you want to prototype it. Try to do something with $200 to see how far you could get with making whatever you were going to make. Try things out in a trial basis and then iterate your way forward because things change so fast, because you don't know yourself that way. You don't know actually what you are yes. unique about. So you want to inch and prototype your way forward. And that's true about even kind of larger projects, like if you're gonna make a kitchen remodel, to get cardboard from refrigerators and make a full-scale prototype cardboard version of it to see if the counter heights are the right length. If you're writing a book, you're gonna prototype it by making a first draft. You're gonna make the whole book all the way through knowing that you're gonna throw it away. That was so hard for me in the beginning, knowing that I'm gonna make a piece of furniture one time and then throw it away and make it again in order to make it better. So don't try to make grand plans, prototype your life as you go forward. So that would be one of my main things. Right. I want to give you three quick questions to ask yourself, okay? As I said, my book is all about writing the story of your work. I have 21 questions, here are three. Question number one, what are the upsides and downsides of work you learned from your parents? Yeah. We forget the past in our work story. Uh, I will tell you, two-thirds of people in my conversation said the number one upside they learned from their parents was the value of hard work. And I kept hearing this over and over again. I was sort of bored and grumpy. I'm like, <laughs> okay, I'm going to start asking people the downsides. And that's when it got interesting. Okay, number one downside from their parents, overwork. Followed yeah. by strain on the family, followed by unhappiness. If you want to understand what's going on at work today, put those questions next to each other. People want to work hard, but they are no longer prepared to overwork, uh, be unhappy, and put a strain on their family. You have a story of work that's been shaped by your upbringing that you are not thinking about, but it's driving your actions identified. That's question number two. one. Question number two, I'm at a moment in my life when blank. Fill in that question. I'm in a moment in my life when I want to make money because I got to pay off my student loans, or in my case, I'm about to spend two kids to college, or I'm in a moment in my life when I want to prioritize my children, or my mother's going through chemo, and I want to spend time with her, so I don't want to work that's going to make me travel. Or I'm in a moment when I've been doing the same thing for a long time, and um, I've been focused on profit, and I want to give back. I want to fight climate change. I want to make my community better. 20 times in your life, you can change that blank. Ask yourself, I'm in a moment in my life when? Right now, today. And then the last question, in 35 years of asking people questions, my favorite all-time question to ask people was, did you have a toothache when you were young? This comes from a Hans Christian Andersen of the last fairy tale he wrote called Auntie Toothache about the boy who has a toothache, he delirious dream, he's visited by an auntie, his auntie and she says to him, every great poet has a great toothache. 
When you were young, what was the dilemma that mm -hmm. nagged at you, the problem you wanted to mm -hmm. solve or the challenge you wanted to resolve? What is the story you have been trying to tell your whole life? Maybe now is the time to tell that story. So uh, my piece of advice is that that thing that made you weird as a kid yes. might be the thing that makes you great as an adult mm -hmm. as long as you don't lose it. Perfect. I'm and I will follow with three quick strategies that I gleaned from all of these people who I interviewed, plus the experts. So the first I would say is, if you're thinking of a change, the first thing you need to do is imagine your future possible selves, right? You have to imagine not just, it's not just like, you know, today I'm a journalist and tomorrow I want to be a ballerina. It doesn't work that way, right? You imagine it in your head, think it through thoroughly. What would it feel like? What would others, how would others react to you? But it's not enough just to imagine it, what you actually need to do is take action, right? Too many people, somebody raised their hand in, a, in a, an earlier session where I did, and they said, when do I get to call myself a writer? And I said, well, have you written anything yet? And they said, no. <laughs> I said, right, you don't have to be paid for it, but you can write for Medium, write for LinkedIn, write anywhere where you can get it published, but do something. So you, you need to take action um, when you're imagining where you might go from here. It's part of that kind of move before you move, right? Don't just like quit one thing and start another. You want to actually get yourself prepared as you move into it. The second, and I love this piece of advice, which is find yourself what I call an expert companion an expert companion. I'm borrowing this phrase from trauma psychologists who work with trauma victims who go on to have what they call post-traumatic growth. In other words, we all have post-traumatic stress after trauma. People can actually grow, but what they need is someone to help them along the way. And I think all of us, all of us need an expert companion. It is the person who can reflect back to you, your strengths, your weaknesses, your possibilities. And because we all have these innate strengths and talents that are so innate to us that we either don't even realize they exist, or if we do, we discount them because it just seems too easy. We think everybody can do that. Your expert companion, they can help you focus. And then the third, the third one I would leave you to is something that we all know intuitively and, and intellectually, and we almost never do it. Reach out to your, what we call weak ties and dormant ties. That would be people you only know a little bit or people who you have lost touch with. And it is so powerful. There was, um, and it's scary, by the way, it can be very scary. It, you, you reach out to these people, they can give you amazing advice. There were a group of executives who were forced in a study to reach out to somebody they hadn't talked to in five years to talk about a business problem. A hundred percent of them were anxious beforehand. Like, I haven't talked to them, I don't know, it's like scary, right? And particularly, I hear this from introverts, I don't want to do that. Afterward, 90% of them said that the interaction was fun as well as helpful. So you'll, you'll find that you get great advice, you'll, you'll renew, the, rekindle these connections, and I find the best way to do this, and this is something every single person in this room can do today, today. Reach out to somebody in your past who's helped you to say thank you. It's amazingly powerful. You reconnect, it'll make your day, and it'll make their year to hear back from you. Th this actually happened to me recently. Someone I worked with 10 years ago, out of the blue, wrote me a note to say, you probably don't even remember this, but you bucked me up, you helped me at a time that was so difficult for me. And I tell you, I, I was weeping as I read. It was unbelievable. Um, and, and by the way, you reconnect with people, and you will also, everyone benefits. Um, from that, and it will help you in, in your own path, in your own journey forward. So with that, we have a couple of minutes for questions, if we have any in the audience. We have a mic have over here, it looks like um, down here, Joan down here. Uh, Joan Michelson, Electric Ladies Podcast. I had Joanne on my show, go listen to it. <laughs> About her book, um, that's what she said. Um, a couple things. One is, um, and I'll, I'll ask a question really quickly, but what I'm hearing underneath what you're all saying is, and I talk about this with my own clients, is there are different ways to put together the parts of who you are. And we all have different parts of who we are. And in a career uh, or in a job, we're using certain parts, but there's different ways to put that constellation together, which goes to my question. How do you define a career 
in your vernacular. Because, for example, for me, I'm a communicator, but I've used it in a plethora of ways, in, a, in a, quite a range of ways. And, and a business leader and a journalist, I've used it in many ways. So how do you define a career? You keep using the term career change and job change, but there's a difference between a career and a job. So how do you define a career? Um, I, think we should, I think we should abolish the term. I think there's no such thing as a career. Um, I think it's a myth. Um, if you, to, to your point about underrepresented people, Joanne, I thought that was very well made. Okay, I, I stacked the five most successful six, success books of the 20th century uh, on, my, on my table. That's How to Win Friends and Influence People, The Power of Positive Thinking, What Color is Your Parachute, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Uh, I'll save you the, the numbers. 93% of the people in those books were straight white men. 7% were women and 0.003% uh, were, people, were people of color. The idea of the career was invented for the straight white man, okay? And we have to expunge it. There is no reason to continue. I just wrote a book uh, uh, called The Search, Finding Meaningful Work in a Post-Career World. And other than attacking the word career, I didn't use it. It's very hard because there is no reason to continue using it because the career stigmatized the idea of taking time off to spend time with your family, to have children, right? It's like the idea of the midlife crisis when the, the guy who came up with it, Elliot Jock, in the 1950s, didn't talk to women because he said when they go through menopause, it screws up my theory. Well, if it screws up your theory, your theory is wrong. And so the career, some people do. They want to be, as you said, center fielder for the Yankees and they become it. We don't have to continue using this word, okay? It's work. You're doing work. And you can do work that is a linear path if that's what you want. But you don't have to. The career is an expectation. It's a massive should train that we all feel we have to get on. Get off the should train, get on the want train, and drop that old language that was defined for a different era. I actually, yeah. 100% agreement, but actually, I don't like the word work either. <laughs> no, 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 because it's very, very confusing because the, the, the productivity bros, you know, the people who are trying to like minimize the amount of time they spend on something, I think is okay, that's fine, but really what you want to be doing is you want to be finding something that you want to do forever. You want to spend as much time as possible. Is that work? So, in a certain sense, you could say the, the reward f for good work is you can get work, you can work more. Yes. So we have this idea of work as being something painful or hard, but actually if you transfer that to something that we want to do for all time, that we want to maximize, that's, so we might need even a, another word. Yeah, there. I mean, come to this panel I'm doing with, with Tamar again. I, I, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I had a slightly different perspective on what you're both saying. Oh, please, that's, that's great, because yeah. For this is particularly, um, they're, they're, when you go to a cocktail party, what is the first, people, first thing people ask you? What do you do, right? If you are someone who has lost their job, if you are someone who stays at home and cares for their children, what do you say? How do you feel? I've been that person. It feels awful. And in fact, um, one of the women in my book who I so admire, this is a woman who had a high-powered job. She had an MBA. She had three children in a row. Um, she was fortunate enough that, th that her husband's salary could keep them both afloat, so she very, very, very reluctantly left her career because she loved working. Her whole life she grew up wanting to be a businesswoman, and suddenly she said, who am I? And she said she started going to cocktail parties uh, with her husband as the spouse, and she said people, she would get introduced, people would say, what do you do? I don't know, I'm home with my kids. And she said immediately, they looked over her head. She said for 12 years, she was home with her kids for 12 years. She said, 12 years, I was invisible, invisible. Nobody could see me. And so what she did is she did lots and lots of volunteer work. And she is an amazing example because she, after 12 years, realized all of her career, all of her um, volunteer work gave her tremendous, tremendous amounts of expertise. And she created her own nonprofit that it's called the Acceleration Project. And what it does is she gets volunteers like herself, women who have great business experience but are not employed for money, and they tutor the local businesses in her communities. They help them with balance sheets and marketing and all kinds of other things. And she became so successful and it raised her profile to such an extent that she is now the mayor of Scarsdale, New York. She is awesome. But the one thing she said, and I think to this point, to yeah. your question, John, the, the, the one thing she said is what she has these volunteers, and she told the volunteers, don't call yourself a volunteer. Call yourself a consultant. 
you're not being paid, but you are doing the work of a consultant. And that is a professional job. Do not diminish what you do. So I do think that this is, it's an interesting question. I'd love to abolish career, but I think that that is, you know, th there is an issue of identity and an issue of how people are treated in the world. Yeah. Uh, other questions? Oh, we only have like another like 30 seconds. One more question. <laughs> Over here. I have, two, I have two questions, so maybe you can do it fast. Bruce, this is for Bruce. Um, what, what does it mean in a network-based economy rather than a knowledge-based economy is one question. And then my other one is, when you said we have these five jobs, is this new? I mean, people always were caring. Maybe they didn't have the ghost job, but I'm curious about that. Yeah, and I think they're related. So the difference between a knowledge, you know, the, the knowledge-based economy of the 1950s and the network-based economy of today is the change comes at you from all directions, okay? So we live in a global world, okay? We live in a world where change is coming from the top and change is coming from the bottom. So the, 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 uh, the, we've moved from a linear way of thinking about life and a linear way of living to a nonlinear way where the change comes at us from all directions. And that's the same thing with these multiple jobs is that we are doing different work, different things in our lives. And I think that the story, uh, you know, it perfectly illustrates the nature of this conversation, right? The, the, the story you just shared about the mayor of Scarsdale, because ultimately what we're talking about is the relationship between what you do and, the, and how you feel about yourself. Okay, and ultimately this is why I believe it comes down to meaning and to realize that you can get the meaning from the traditional metrics of the traditional uh, linear career path or you can get it from your side job, from your hope job, from your volunteer work, from your travel, from the contributions. The big change that we're going on, the last big idea that I'll send you to go through um, and expressing honor and gratitude that all of us feel that you're here and you've joined us today, is that I think that we are moving, if you want to tell me, someone asked me recently where I think this is going, we're moving from a means-based economy to a meaning-based economy. And the question ultimately for each of us will be how do we define meaning for ourselves? You can do it the traditional way, you can change, you can do it whatever you want, but make yourself the hero of your own work story. With that, I want to say thank you to our amazing panelists and thank you to your great audience. Kevin Kelly is Senior Maverick at Wired Magazine, which he co-founded in 1993 and was executive editor of for his first seven years. He's also co-chair of the Long Now Foundation, an organization that champions long-term thinking. His latest book is Excellent Advice for Living, a book of 450 modern proverbs for a good life. Bruce Feiler is an author and speaker. He's written 15 books, including Life is in the Transitions and The Council of Dads. Feiler's latest book is The Search, Finding Meaningful Work in a Post-Career World. Feiler also writes the Nonlinear Life newsletter. Joanne Lippman is a journalist and author. She's an on-air contributor to CNBC and a Yale University journalism lecturer. Her books are Next, The Power of Reinvention in Life and That's What She Said, What Men and Women Need to Know About Working Together. Previously, Lippman was editor-in-chief of USA Today. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.